Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information, head to calvarystgeorges.org. What do you think about when you think about power? I think about Arnold Schwarzenegger when he wins the Mr. Universe competition again and again. I think of bosses. So often, their authority, rightly or wrongly, is used for punitive purposes. I think of Tony Soprano, maybe because the prequel is coming out soon, but no one is going to mess with Tony Soprano because they know if they do, he's going to take them out. Maybe for you was Michael Corleone from The Godfather. Now how, I want you to turn with me to page 6, I believe it is. Page 6. In this collect of the day that we prayed earlier, how does the author of the colic understand power? He says, O oh God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Did you hear that? Chiefly in showing mercy and pity. So it seems there are two ways set out before us. The way of Tony Soprano and the way of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The way of subjugation and force and the way of mercy and pity. The way of this college, the way of the scriptures are very different than the ways of the world. The way of this collect is counterintuitive. It's upside down. It operates with a different kind of logic than the one that you and I operate with on a day-to-day basis. Martin Luther, everyone, every priest at this church's favorite theologian, he talks about these different ways by distinguishing them between what he calls right-handed power and left-handed power. Right-handed power is the way of the world, flexing your muscle, exerting your authority through the use of force or domination. Left-handed power being the way of self-giving, the way of love and grace. The old Kanye West unpacked this left-handed way of power very well when he said that real power is the power to let power go. Whatever you think about him, that, that's really pretty good. That's, that's, that's scripture right there. Now, when I think of right-handed power, when I think of Tony Soprano, when I think of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the weight room, I tend to think of right-handed power as being stronger, as being more confident and secure. But I begin to wonder if that's actually the case. Right-handed power is often very vulnerable, right? Schwarzenegger did not stay on top of Mr. Universe forever. A gifted leader in a company is always a little bit worried that one of the young bucks might just be a little bit more gifted than them and they might, in fact, become the CEO. I don't know what your profession is, but... Aren't you at times a little bit worried that someone might just be a better writer, a better preacher, a better you-fill-in-the-blank than you? 
Now, recently I saw Paul Schrader's newest movie, The Card Counter, and I think in that movie, which I'm not going to spoil, gives us a really good illustration of right-handed power. Oscar Isaac, who is everywhere right now, new Dune movie, new HBO series, he's so hot right now. He plays this soldier, this ex-soldier, who was on one of those islands, right, where they were bringing together terrorists or suspected terrorists or people who looked like terrorists, and they tried to brutalize them to get information. In fact, the movie is, it's fictional, but it's kind of based on what happened not that long ago. There's the story of the pictures of the soldiers with the people who they're torturing, and a lot of those soldiers went to jail. Well, Oscar Isaac's character is one of those soldiers. He's done his eight years in jail. He's a broken man, and he's bitter because he did all this because the higher-ups told him he had to, and it kind of took over his life. And he's talking to this young man who is the son of one of the other soldiers who were thrown in prison, and he says to him, as a torture, as what I might say, as one with right-handed power, you're always tempted to flex that muscle. And at times, they would deal with folks who would give them no information. And the torturer, the person with the power, might get so frustrated that they take things too far. I began to wonder as I was watching the movie, who has the real power in that scenario? It seems the one with the real power is the one who has no power. Isaac goes on to say that those with what we're calling right-handed power are always at risk of tilting, of taking it too far, of being so concerned about having all of the people who are under your power stay there that you become an authoritarian, that you in fact become a torturer of sorts. With that left-handed power, with that power that we see in those who will not give up the information, and the power that we see in the martyrs of the early church, the power that we see displayed in the one who went to the cross for us on our behalf. This left-handed power, what the call it calls the mercy and pity of Christ, with that power, with that left-handed power, it's not a competition. It's not a zero-sum competitive game. Now, you might object. You might say, well, you know, left-handed power can turn into that kind of game. Just, just think about the competition I had in my church, about who was better than the other, who gave up the most. And it's true. I grew up in a church like that as well. But don't you see that that's warping left-handed power? It's turning it into right-handed power, a kind of a sick and twisted power. It's just another form of one-upmanship. If we were truly self-giving, if we had that left-handed power, then we'd welcome those who are better than us, who give more than us. Again, it wouldn't be this zero-sum competitive game. Now, don't get me wrong, there do seem to be both right-handed and left-handed power elements in God. Just think of the what we call the attributes of God. 
Think about the notion that God is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing. A lot of the times when I think of God being all-powerful, I think of earthquakes, I think of wrath, I think of punishments. Uh, but it can also be good things, right? It could be something like the marvel that is the Grand Canyon. That incredible building in Dubai. How did we do this? This is incredible. You can't do this in New York City, but when you go camping in West Virginia, think about when you're camping out at night and you look in the sky and it, you're like Abraham. You can't count the limit in the stars. Whether positive or negative, no, when we think about power in this way, it's all about grandeur. And don't get me wrong, there's a reason we're reverent here. We believe in the grandeur of our God. But look at the collect once again. You declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Take a look at the God-man, Jesus. It's not just according to the collect, it's according to the Gospels. The preeminent moment of his power is in his self-emptying. It's him going to the cross for you and me on our behalf and in our place. What looks like weakness is the disarming once and for all of the powers of sin and death. The undoing of the evil one we pray against every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. And this raises the question for you and me. What must God be like if his ultimately ultimate display of power is in forgiving his enemies as he's being crucified. Friends, do you see? This is upside down. This is something we don't see in our day-to-day -day lives, but we're mesmerized by it. And what it reveals is a simple theological truth that the theologians have been trying to teach us forever. Almighty God, the God-man Jesus Christ, is no thing. He's not in competition with anyone. God is perfect in love and power and purity, complete in himself. He doesn't need other people to satisfy him. He doesn't need your love to make him feel good about himself. This essentially undoes all the arguments of Richard Dawkins and Hitchens. and all. They treat God as if God is the biggest thing, the strongest thing in the universe. And what we're saying is God is not a thing. God is not this Schwarzenegger in the sky. God is other. God is in no competition with anyone. And this is what enables him to be completely for the other. He doesn't need you. He's not in competition with you. He's not even in competition with the devil and his demons. And that makes God uniquely able to be for others and have no self-interest in this game. Whose almighty power is chiefly shown in what looks like weakness, the displaying of mercy. Now in a couple of minutes we're going to pray a prayer that's very similar. We're going to pray in the, the prayer of humble access 
We pray to the one whose property is always to have mercy. This isn't Tony Soprano type of power, because Tony Soprano is keeping people under him because he's worried that someone will come up. God has no fear of that. So God is for us, despite everything. Now, I really could end there, but I'm taking a note out of Jake's book, and he always has three points, so I'll give you two. And the second one is really a continuation of the first. And it really is just what's going on in the rest of the columns. We acknowledge that God displays his almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. And so what is our ask? What are we asking this one who is for us despite everything? Who doesn't need us but chooses to love us, warts and all, anyway? We pray, grant us the fullness of your grace that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. You who display your nature chiefly in mercy and pity, give us that mercy, give us that grace, so that we might run to obtain your mercy, run to obtain your love, your heavenly treasure, in the words of the Collect. Now, when I first read this, I, I started to wonder, like, does this second part of the prayer take away from the first part? Are we praying that God is chiefly merciful, and yet, in the next instance, we're saying, well, we better run to get that mercy, or we're going to be left out of that mercy. It's like, is grace like a Gatorade, is kind of what I, how I interpreted the prayer. But when I turned to the commentators, when I looked at them, they said, no, not at all. What this prayer is emphasizing is that Christ has already graced us. Christ has already won the race. So we are running not in order to win a prize, but in order to get the prize that he has won for us. The illustration that my friend gave me that I absolutely love, that I hope that you take out of here with, is from the Tour de France. For those of you who are familiar with the Tour de France, you know that the last stage is not really part of the race at all, and yet it's the last stage. The end of the race is the penultimate stage. The winner of the penultimate stage on the final stage, the last leg of the race, he is pedaling into Paris, but they're already drinking wine, they're already getting the champagne, they're basking in their victory and everyone who watches the Tour de France everyone who's into it they watch that one just as much as the race because it's a celebration that's a picture of what this collect is talking about when we run to grab on to what Christ has waiting for us we're running with much different motivations with those that might think I've got to run or the door is going to be shut No, we're running toward life. We're running toward this mercy, this upside-down kingdom. We're running away from this ultra-competitive nature of our world to the one who's done it already. So, friends, really two things. Sum it up. I don't know what kind of power has been exerted on you, whether for good or for ill, 
further. Some of that power has resulted in pain and trauma. On the flip side, I don't know what kind of power that you've exerted on others, that I've exerted, that where I've felt that scarcity, where I've felt that vulnerability and I flexed. Our God is not a boss, a Schwarzenegger in the sky who is looking for an opportunity to trip you up, to punish you, to see if you'll run the race and the time set aside. Our Lord is the one who has won it for us, who declares his power by showing mercy, who, if we really take the metaphor to its conclusion, is actually the one running towards us. Two and connected. The effect of this self-emptying power, this left-handed power, is that the race is secure. It has been won. The door will not be closed. It doesn't matter how fast we are. It doesn't matter how many times we fall along the way, but you and I, we run like there's no tomorrow because we know at the end of the race is life. At the end of the race is mercy. At the end of the race, we have one waiting for us who is not looking for where we've fallen short, but the one who is looking to envelope us for eternity in this mercy and grace. My friends, it sounds too good to be true, but the collect, and more importantly, the scriptures say it is. So believe it. Though the world tell you the exact opposite, we serve the one who is no thing, who is in competition with nothing. And because he's not worried of anyone usurping his power, he is completely self-giving. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of the parish, you can make an online donation at calvarystgeorges.org slash giving. Thank you.